Welcome, welcome. Very glad you're here with us. Let me read for us uh, from Luke chapter 1. Scripture says this in verse 39. In those days, it says, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And there she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Elizabeth was her aunt. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby in her womb, meaning the baby in Elizabeth's womb, uh, who would would be John the Baptist, leaped in her womb. And and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed in a loud voice, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And behold, when the sound of her greeting, of your greeting, came into my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And so Elizabeth sees Mary walk in the door. She can tell somehow miraculously that she is uh, pregnant with, with Jesus, with the, with the coming king, the Messiah. John the Baptist in her womb leaps for joy. And she says, you are blessed among women. And then Mary responds with this song, the, 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 essentially the first Christmas carol here known as the Magnificat. It says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. And behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he has exalted those of humble estate. Mary goes on to say, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. God, I pray that uh, that our hearts would rejoice this morning. God, as Elizabeth's heart rejoiced, as Mary's heart rejoiced, and that we would would sing to you. God, that we would live lives of magnifying who you are, as Mary did. So God, help us this morning, we pray in your name. Amen. If you were with us last week, uh, we read the story of the Annunciation, the story in Luke chapter 1 of the angel Gabriel coming to Mary and telling Mary, Mary, you're going to have a baby. Mary was a a very young, probably 11, 12, maybe 13-year-old girl, uh, engaged to be married to Joseph, a virgin, and the angel shows up in her life and says, Mary, you will give birth to a son, and not only any son, but you will give birth to the son of the Most High God. He, 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 He will reign over the throne of David forever and ever. His kingdom will have no end. This is good news, Mary. You will be the mother of the Messiah that everyone, that the whole world has been waiting for. And we saw in that passage in Luke chapter 1, we saw Mary essentially move from this place of uh, asking the angel, how can it be? I'm, I'm, I'm a virgin and I, I, I'm nobody. Mary was a nobody from a nowhere town and yet that's who God chose to show up and give this amazing news to. And we see Mary through the course of this conversation move from how can it be to let it be. Let it be to me 
according to your word. God, whatever, whatever you want from me, God, let it be. She, she, didn't, she didn't let the angel off without asking a hard question, right? She asked the hard question, and yet without all the answers, without being able to tell the future, without knowing how this would unfold and affect her engagement with Joseph, how this would affect her relationship with her parents, how this would affect her, her place in her community, without having all of those details settled, it says she, she simply believed and she gave herself over to her Lord. She said, I am, I am the servant of the Lord. I am, I am the slave girl of the Lord. Whatever you want with my life, God, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel also told Mary in this same instance that her aunt, Elizabeth, Elizabeth was the, uh, the priest's wife, Zachariah's wife. She was, she was advanced in years. She'd been barren her whole life. And the angel, in the same way that he told Mary that she would give birth to a son, he says, and your aunt, if you can even believe it, and your aunt Elizabeth is pregnant and will give birth in a few months. And so because Mary is a very normal uh, 11, 12, 13-year-old girl, an unmarried virgin who has now found herself pregnant. She is, of course, scared, probably confused, probably unsure about how all this is going to unfold. Uh, she does what I think any young girl should do. She goes and finds an older, godly woman to get guidance from, to be with, to have, have pray over her, to be in, in relationship with. And she goes to see her much older aunt, Elizabeth. While she visits Elizabeth, as soon as Mary walks in, we read the story, Elizabeth just knows. You know, it's the glow, right? She just knows when Mary walks in, something is completely different. And not only does she know that she's pregnant, she knows specifically that she is pregnant with the Messiah. It says she exclaimed in a loud voice. Literally, she shrieked. Any of you guys have ants like that? They just shriek? I got an ant like that. She just shrieked at Mary and said, blessed are you among women. And Mary responds with this first Christmas carol, the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And when Mary says, my, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, what she is saying is, my whole life, my spirit and soul, everything about me. That's the way of saying sort of everything. All I've got, every day of my life, everything that I want to do, I want my life to magnify Jesus. I want it to magnify the Lord. I am giving myself fully to his work. She is saying, in effect, when you, when you look at me, I don't want you to see me. When you look at me, I don't want you to see Mary. What I want you to see is the Lord. I want you to see the beauty and the majesty, the mystery the power and the glory of the Messiah. That's what I want you to see when you look at me. I want to magnify and I want to keep on magnifying. You see, Mary in this story, and this is a, a, a profound truth, Mary realizes in this moment that the Lord has seen her. That's what we want, right? We want to be, we want to be seen. We want to be recognized. We want people to... to to know who we are, to, to consider us. And most of all, God, and that's what Mary says. Essentially, she said, God has, God has seen me, and not only that, he hasn't just seen me, he has seen me in my humble state. He knows who I am. I'm a nobody from nowhere. 
And yet God, God has seen me, God has looked upon me, and he's blessed me beyond what I deserve. He knows that I don't deserve it. He knows I bring nothing to the table, and yet he sees me, he acknowledges me, and not only that, but he doesn't deal with me according to what I deserve. That's the passage that Marcus read just a moment ago in Psalm 103, that, that as far as the east is from the west, he removes our sins from us. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He didn't give Mary what she deserved, and she knows it, and that's what she says. She says, God saw me for who I was, and yet he blessed me among all women. God didn't look down at Mary and say, now there's a woman who's going places, right? Now, that, now there's a woman who's got all the right connections and all the right skill. She's, she's got it all together. Now this is the woman I, I think can help me in raising King Jesus. That's not what he, that's not what he did, right? He, he looked down at this young girl, this poor Jewish preteen. This young girl who would respond faithfully to him. Who, who would simply and humbly say, you can have me, every bit of me, it's all yours, do with me what you will, my life will magnify you. I want my life every day, every moment to keep on magnifying. And she responds faithfully to God's call, she responds with humility, she responds with obedience, in spite of what this might cost her. We talked last week, this could cost her a great deal. It could cost her her fiancé, it could cost her her life, and yet she gives herself completely to the Lord. Her body, her reputation, her social standing, her relationships, everything, her whole life, she hands over to God. And when you put yourself in this situation, if, if you're this young girl, uh, nobody from nowhere with nothing, and you feel this amazing call on your life, but that also feels like such a tremendous risk, that risk in Mary, it doesn't produce in her what I would think would, it would produce in me, which is fear and anxiety. When you, when you realize that God is calling you to a place that you feel like you have everything to lose, you want to trust Him, you want to believe, but that step into the unknown, that step into the fog, that step into the darkness could produce fear and anxiety, but that's not what it produced in Mary. What did it produce in Mary? It produced joy. It produced worship. Joyful, humble, submissive worship. It's as though Mary looks beyond her current circumstances, which at that point are not great. She looks beyond her current circumstances. She looks beyond the potential negative consequences of God's call on her life in this moment, this news that she's been given by this angel. And instead, she fixes her eyes on the God who makes good on his promises. She looks through her circumstances. She looks at God who uses humble people. She doesn't pity herself. She doesn't say, poor me. She submits herself in worship to God. She rightly understands, listen to this, she rightly understands that this risky call that God has put on her life is not something negative, but it's a complete reversal of her fortunes. 
She knows that she is blessed among all. She knows that this voice of God, that if, if she follows what the Lord is telling her, everything will be as it should be. That God will not leave her alone. That God will be with her and that God will make good on his promises. And, and she knows that this is good not only for her, she knows this is good for the world. And it's a great reversal of fortunes both for her and for the world. She anchors this belief in who God is. This is important to do that when we, we encounter these situations in our life, it's important for us to anchor our response not to our feelings and our, our emotions or our, what we can tell about our current circumstances. She anchors this response in what? In who God is. In God's attributes. She begins to talk about it. She says, I'm blessed. God saw me for who I was, yet he blessed me among all women. It's because God is, what does she say? God is mighty. Because God is holy. Because God is merciful. And each of these attributes are important, right? She's not saying, he, he's not mighty, but merciless. Like some would think of God. He is not holy, but powerless. He, he is not merciful, but corrupt. No, he is, he is powerful, all-powerful. And all-merciful. And completely holy. And so her understanding of God, her anchoring this belief in who God was, it changes her life and doesn't produce in her fear and anxiety, but produces joyful worship. She says, this is, this is my God, my Savior. It's important to note here as I was reading this passage, as you're reading this passage, you have to think, think about who Mary is, where she's from, her age, her state in life, and you don't want to miss that this, this song that's coming from her heart is deeply theological and completely biblical. Right? For this young girl, thoroughly biblical, deeply theological. Again, most, most commentators, most scholars would say 11, 12, 13 maybe. No older than 13 for sure. And yet these few verses reflect Mary's spiritual maturity they reflect her biblical knowledge. So part of what I want to tell you guys, um, I, I want to speak to the parents. Parents, don't underestimate your children. Don't underestimate your children. Don't underestimate your children's ability to understand Scripture, to memorize Scripture, to internalize Scripture, to consider deep theological concepts, to, to think about the deep questions about who they are, about who God is, about sin and redemption. This is a young girl who sings this song in response to this news that she received, thoroughly biblical, deeply theological. Don't lower the bar, parents. And kids, I want to say something to you too. Don't give yourself a pass. Don't give yourself a pass. If you're, if you're a young kid, don't give yourself a pass. Don't put off reading scripture. Don't put off learning how to pray. Don't, don't put off thinking about big spiritual truths or, or serving your community or submitting to God's call on your life. As we read scriptures, God called very young people to do very important things. Don't wait until you're a teenager or in high school or in college or just at some future unspecified date. Submit your life to Christ now. Dig into his word now. Learn to pray now. 
I want to tell you that it's easy to look ahead and think about what could be, but we, we are not promised one more breath than the last one we took. Don't put it off. I, you know, I was talking to uh, Mark Womble earlier. He has been married for 47 years. Is that right? Yes. Very, yeah, that's right. That should give that guy a hand for that. I'm just rounding the corner of 15, so I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best. I'm not at 47 yet, but I'm working my way there. Um, as I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking about my, my brother, Marcus, um, and his, 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 he's been a real encouragement. You've been a real encouragement to me, a testimony to me about God's faithfulness, uh, about, about uh, having godly children, about serving in the church. He's, he's teaching. He and his wife are teaching, along with the Meachams, our, our, class, our Sunday school class on marriage. I just wanted him to, to say a prayer, uh, especially for the children in the room, for the children in the room, who I think this could be an important story for. You wanna, you can, you're welcome to come up here, brother, and say a prayer for us. Don't underestimate your kids, folks. Good morning, Redeemer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this this season in which we have a chance to once again remember that you bless us with the deliverance of a human child. By your design, you brought a Savior to us through a, a human child. You also blessed us in increasing our families with a human child. Father, we... Um, ask you to help us to be mindful of the fact that with great blessing becomes, also comes great responsibility. Many of these children will see you and know you and understand you for the first time in their lives through the behavior and the activities they see in us. Lord, we pray that in every way that we make you known to others, that we'll be be mindful of the fact that we started out as a human child as well. Father, we ask for us to be mindful of the true reason for this season, the coming of your son. We thank you for how he blesses us, and we thank you for the love that, that he shows to us through you. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Hope you guys are praying for your kids. We are. We're praying for your kids. I hope you are. In these five sentences from this young preteen girl from a backwoods community, she quotes in five sentences from First and Second Samuel from the book of Psalms, from the book of Isaiah, from the book of Genesis, Habakkuk, Micah, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and more. This is a girl who knew her Bible, folks. She knew her Bible. Almost every line has a counterpart or an allusion in the Old Testament. And really this this entire song is an echo of Hannah's song or Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel. You guys may remember the story. We meet Hannah in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 1. Hannah is the wife of a man named Elkanah. 
And Elkanah actually has two wives. It's a, it's a, it's a sad story at the beginning, but it gets better. Um, Elkanah is married to both Hannah and uh, Penana. And Penana had children, but Hannah was barren, and Hannah had no children. And yet, Penana would, would, would ridicule and demean Hannah for being barren. So insult to injury, right? And, and she, would, she would abuse Hannah so much that Hannah would, would, would just weep and not be able to eat and would just, would just groan and mourn. That's where we meet Hannah in 1 Samuel. And there's this scene where Hannah is at the temple. They are there praying. Hannah is on the, the steps of the temple. She is weeping. She is just sick. Why has God forgotten her? Why, why is, is this woman that she has to live with constantly ridiculing her and abusing her? She's deeply distressed, and she's begging God for a child. And she said, O Lord of hosts, this is in 1 Samuel 1, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life. And at that moment, right there at that moment, as Hannah is praying, she encounters Eli, the priest. And Eli's there, and he speaks to Hannah in her darkest moment. And he says, go in peace. The Lord God of Israel grant your petition. And of course, as the prophets of God speak, what they speak is not their words, but God's words. And soon after, Hannah becomes pregnant. And she's then delivered this baby boy, and, and what's his name? Samuel. Samuel. And like Mary, Hannah sang this prayer to God in 1 Samuel 2. Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice, God, in your salvation. There is none holy like you, O Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God, Hannah says. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. He knows us. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. The feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who is many is forlorn. The Lord kills and he also brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up again. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. Do you see the similarities? You see the similarities? Hannah, uh, Mary is basically echoing this song from Hannah. She, my heart rejoices, my spirit rejoiced, right? No one is holy like you, Hannah says. Mary says, holy is his name. The bows of the mighty are broken, says Hannah. Mary says, he has put down the mighty from their thrones. Hannah says, the hungry have ceased to hunger. And Mary says that he has filled the hungry with good things. Mary knew her Bible. She knew her Bible. She lived her Bible. She, her humble and joyful, worshipful response to God was shaped by her knowledge of Scripture. 
by her love of Scripture. She could identify with Hannah. She could identify with Ruth. She could identify with Sarah. She knew these women. It's important for us to locate ourselves in this broader story of what God is doing in humanity and throughout history. She trusted God. She knew the stories of God's faithfulness. And so she could move from that place of how can it be to let it be. But you see, Mary's song, it goes beyond how it affects her. It goes beyond just personal application. This, this first Christmas carol has broad, sweeping application. It affects the whole world. Not only have Mary's fortunes been reversed, but the value systems of the world have been overturned in this song. Do you see it? The message of Christmas is a dangerous one because it's a message of God exalting the humble and humbling the proud. And here's the bad news. We're all proud. We're all proud. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorite writers, says that, the, that God's coming, the story of Christmas, is not only a matter of glad tidings for us, but first of all, it's terrifying news for anyone who has a conscience. This is God coming to the world, overturning the values of this world, putting down the proud and exalting the humble. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their own hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those of humble estate, but filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. This is great news for the poor in spirit. This is great news for the humble in heart. But it is terrifying news for the proud and self-reliant. God's power does not work like the power of the world. In fact, it oftentimes competes with the power of this world. And yet the gospel, the gospel is the great leveler. Right? It, 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 it prevents any one of us in this room from thinking that we're any better off than anyone else in this room or at any other place on this planet. It's the great leveler. It raises the humble and it puts down the proud. We judge almost exclusively, we judge almost exclusively based on socioeconomic class, on physical appearance, on education. But the gospel, it raises the poor. It raises the, the, the socially poor, the physically poor, the politically poor, the financially poor. It raises them up and it lowers the proud and the self-sufficient. This is why the gospel story and, and this Magnificat especially have, been, have, have produced such tension in the world. You may, we, we, we went through this story of the Magnificat maybe three or four years ago. Um, and I remember when I was studying that, I was surprised that as I read the history of this song, I learned that this song was banned in India in the early 20th century because fear of integrating that into the weekly worship services, they were worried that it would provoke a revolution in the country. At different times in history, it was banned in Mexico in the 1930s. It was banned in Spain, banned in, uh, for public reading in Guatemala in the 80s, banned in Argentina in the 70s. For the same reason, this song is too dangerous. It's too dangerous. It's, it's too revolutionary. This is a subversive and provocative hymn of rebellion against the powers of this world. 
against the values of this world, against the patterns and the expectations of this world. This first Christmas carol, this impromptu song from a preteen girl from nowhere has set nations on their head, has overturned the power systems of this world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer goes on, he says, it is at once the most passionate and the wildest, one might say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not a gentle and dreamy and tender Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. No, this song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, even playful tone of some of our other Christmas carols. It is instead a hard and strong and execrable song about collapsing thrones, about humbling lords of this world, about the power of God, and about the powerlessness of the world. The gospel news confronts us, each of us, with our inability to raise ourselves. We come to God humbly or not at all. The message of God's power, it's, it's overwhelming for those who attempt to hold power for themselves too tightly. But for those who, like Mary, trust in God's power to save, this song is good news. The song is good news for the humble. This, this song is, uh, one, one commentator says that, that Mary's song is the gospel before the gospel. It's the good news. The good news of, of humbly being accepted by God, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. St. Augustine famously said that, um, that for those of us who would learn God, God's ways, humility is the first step. The second step is humility. And the third step is humility. If we were to learn God's ways, the first step, the second step, the third step, humility. We must be poor in spirit. The news of the birth of Christ, it changes everything for us. Mary understood that. Mary understood that this news now, this news that I received from an angel, it's going to change the world. She says from now on, in verse 48, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And it's the, it's the writer, Luke, who, who's writing this Gospel of Luke. And Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And Luke, as he's writing these two books, um, both the Gospel and the book of Acts, he picks up on this phrase, from now on. He gets it from Mary. And when Mary says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, he uses that as a sort of signal in these two books of something significant changing. Of sort of a whole new idea about the, the progress of the gospel. We see it in, in chapter 5 of Luke. From now on, Jesus says to his disciples, you will be fishers of men. From now on, Jesus says, uh, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom comes. From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And in Acts, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This news of the gospel is a from now on kind of news. It's, a, it's saying that my life looking ahead is different than my life looking back. It's a new chapter. For Mary, everything would be different now. This was not just, this was not just theology. This was not just theory. This was, this was life and death. This was world-shaping history. This was money and food and thrones. And yet she trusts God to keep his promises. 
She knows because he is mighty, because he is holy, because he is merciful. This is a God who keeps his promises. He is the same God who created the world. He's the same God who promised Abraham that he would have a nation of descendants. That's what she calls back to in her, in her song. He's the same God who promised the Messiah. He is an unchanging God who changes everything. He's an unchanging God who for us and for everyone changes everything. The coming of Christ, the story of Christmas, it's, it's the cosmic turning point. It's the hinge point of all history. Mary confesses, from now on he will scatter the proud. From now on he will bring down thrones, he will fill the hungry with good things, send the rich away empty-handed. This is devastating news for a world propped up on its own power on its own wisdom and ingenuity and not on God's. Mary serves as a symbol for us, a model of faithfulness and humble submission. And she doesn't magnify herself, right? What does she say? May my life, my soul, my spirit, every bit about me, every part of my story, may it magnify the Lord. Do you trust in God's faithfulness like Mary did? Do you look back at the stories of Scripture? Do you know the stories of Scripture? And that when you look back on them, you are encouraged and empowered by believing in God's making good on His promises. Do you see that to experience God's power means letting go of your own? I want to leave you with this question. What does your soul magnify? What does your soul magnify? What do people see when they look at you? What do you want them to see when they look at you? Or maybe more specifically, what do they see about God when they see us? Do our lives magnify the Lord? What does your life magnify? Let me pray for us.